Hello everyone, this is Pastor Damien. You're listening to Sermon Audio from New City, Orlando. At New City, we believe all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. For more resources, visit our website at newcityorlando.com. Thanks for listening. Eternal God, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. Holy Spirit, help us to love and trust your word. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. This week our scripture reading comes again from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 30. Please remain standing if you're able. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that's seen isn't hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what's the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. My name is Damien. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Mike said, we were concluding a sermon series in Romans 1 through 8 this spring. And the last three weeks, starting last week, we began Romans chapter 8. We'll preach again from this section, and then we'll come back next week. And Ben will conclude the series again, preaching from Romans chapter 8. Now, Romans chapter 8 is rich, and it's one of the most beloved chapters in the New Testament, no doubt about it. And many preachers and pastors and theologians spend dozens of weeks on each verse, it seems, in this chapter, but that's not what we've chosen to do. So I just mentioned that to say, some of you, this no doubt is your favorite section in Scripture. This, this section of Scripture is, uh, is what has kept you in seasons of hardship that were unimaginable to you before you experienced them and maybe felt unbearable while you were in them. And so I know that there are some things that I will need to leave out today, but that doesn't discount the power of this section of Scripture. And I'd I'd invite you, 
uh, go back, reflect on this for the rest of the week. In a sense, we're just now opening uh, the, the reflection possibilities for you in the next few minutes together. So with that, I would say every story of glory includes adversity. Every story of glory includes adversity. Think about your favorite stories, maybe in a movie. Just for the sake of popularity, I'll say, what about Hogwarts and Harry Potter and all your favorite characters? Think about whoever your favorite character was. Think about the adversity through those books or movies, if you're not good enough to read the books. Right? Think, about, think about the story, think about the journey. And there was great adversity before there was glory. Or you can think about another popular example of books turned into movies, and I'll out myself. I never read, nor do I have desire to read Lord of the Rings or The Fellowship or any of that. Uh, so yes, thank you. So I had to throw myself. Uh, I tried once, and I thought, this is better seen on screen. And so that's where I went. I understand. Um, but nevertheless, some of our favorite characters that we talk about, we experience their glory, their journey. But where did they have to go? They had to go through great adversity, through great suffering. We don't have to only look at fictional stories. We could also look at stories that happened in real life from our own history. So, for example, uh, two weeks ago when I was on vacation, I read for the first time David McCullough's book, 1776. And so it was an award-winning book where he just traces the Revolutionary War in that one year. And so in that book, he traces the events. If you're wondering, why do I know 1776? Well, this was the year, of course, that our country declared independence from Great Britain and produced that document called, of course, the Declaration of Independence. And so it just traces that year. Now, I had heard stories. I had heard stories. I'd read stories, but never this in depth. And of course, as it traced these events, the amount of adversity, pain, and suffering was staggering in some of these stories. Yet, through adversity, many men and women grew and became those people that today, in certain ways, we honor and respect. Think of Olympic athletes. Think about uh, the medal ceremony and the commentary. Every single person on that podium, whether first, second, or third, there's a story of how they got there, of great adversity, maybe through injury or loss of some type. But through adversity, they grow and change, and ultimately, they become Olympic champions. And of course, we don't actually have to go any further than our own stories. We don't have to step out of our own lives. We know that the periods of greatest growth and change in our lives come in the midst of adversity and suffering and pain. But when you're in the midst of suffering, adversity, and pain, you cannot see it. You do not often experience it. But yet, looking back, we do experience it. We do see it. And what we learn when we look back is that pain can grind you into the ground or it can guide you to glory. And the perspective you have in those moments changes your experience of the suffering and it changes your expectation of what will come next after the suffering. And the Bible teaches us very clearly that in a fallen world, adversity is the way to Christ-likeness. There is no other way. Suffering is always the path to glory. There is no other way. The New Testament doesn't shy away from this in any place. That is to say the reality of suffering. 
Even our Lord Jesus, the, the resurrected Lord, on his way on the road to Emmaus, he's talking to these future disciples, and they're discouraged and disappointed because they think the story is over because of this great suffering and death of Jesus. And Jesus, before he gives the greatest sermon we all wish we could have been at, he says this to them. This is the words of the risen Jesus. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Suffering and glory are connected. Earlier in Romans chapter 5, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are in Galatia and they're warning new believers of the very fact we're talking about. This is what they say in chapter 14 verse 22. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, sorry. So suffering and glory go together. And here in our favorite chapter for many of us in the Bible, Paul's desire is to assure us that we will be with Jesus in glory. But he wants us to know that suffering and glory go together. While our destination is glory, the path is filled with adversity and suffering and hardship. And so before we go any further, I want to invite you into this reality. And I want to ask the question, what suffering have you brought with you this morning? What adversity are you facing this morning? What frustration, what disappointment, what sorrow, what burden, what secret suffering? What does someone not know that you've experienced, that you are experiencing? Is it related to relationships, right? Are there relationships right now that are causing you pain? Kids, do you feel like your parents don't understand you and it's confusing to you? Parents, do you feel like you don't understand your kids and it's confusing to you and, and you both desire connection and closeness, but there's adversity and pain and struggle. Is your marriage on the rocks? Is it under strain? Is it a, more generally a frustration, a disappointment? What suffering do you bring in today? Because... You cannot ignore it. As one author says in a different context, so often we view the obstacle as the obstacle. But sometimes the obstacle is the way. Many of us have been trained to think that suffering is an obstacle only in our life and that our job is to get around it. And maybe Jesus is your ticket to get around it. Maybe Jesus is a way to escape suffering. But the New Testament says, no, suffering is a part of the plan. Adversity is a part of your story, but it's also a part of your way to glory. And so what we know is that the Christian life doesn't make any sense. The Christian life in any real way doesn't make any sense unless our highest desire is to become like Jesus. Otherwise, why would we do this? In case you didn't know, many of us, well, we all live in, in this country with great opportunity, and many of us in this room uh, have untold resources and wealth, even if compared to others, you think you don't have it. We have lots of ways to distract ourselves, to spend our time trying to get out from underneath our suffering. We have ways to cope. We, have, we can go into debt. We can become addicted to substance or some other experience. But that's not the way. That's not the way. What we know 
is that when we follow Jesus, our highest desire must be to become like him or it makes no sense. And we know that following Jesus requires suffering. Last week's passage, we read this, that we are children of God. And if children of God, then heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, this is how Ben ended. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. So the point of following Jesus is to become like him. But we need to say at the outset that Jesus suffered not so that we would not suffer, but so that when we suffer, we would become like him. Jesus makes our suffering and hardship productive toward his purposes, not pointless. And so this morning, we may be wrestling with that. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, among other things, wrestles with this tension In one of the chapters on, if God is good, then where does suffering fit? How does this happen? And he he shares a number of analogies of how we think about this in other ways. But he concludes by talking about the glory of what it means to be a human being. And that God chooses to love us. And any love of God on our end is in response to his. And that in God's love for us, he is seeking to make us into exactly what he wants us to be. And in that process, we do experience pain. We do experience suffering. And C.S. Lewis says this, We may wish indeed that we were of so little account to God that he left us alone to follow our own natural impulses. Sometimes we wish, I don't want this suffering. I don't want to become like Jesus. Just leave me alone to let me follow my own natural impulses. But he says, we go on to think that he would give over trying to train us into something so unlike our natural selves. But once again, C.S. Lewis says, when we go there, we're asking not for more love, but for less. Because God is so committed to us in Jesus Christ, he will do everything necessary to conform us to the image of his son. And we know that that includes suffering, adversity, and hardship. Each of us in Christ are on this journey of life where God is taking us to his desired end for us. Now, long introduction to three points. Uh, First, let's talk, where is God taking us? Second, how do we wait until we get there? And third, what do we know? Okay? First, where is God taking us? Answer, from groaning to glory. This is where God's taking us, from groaning to glory. Obviously, our passage today is about glory. Right before this, last week, Ben ended in verse 17, which said that Provided we suffer with Jesus, we will become like him here in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So right before this, verse 17, suffering and glory go together. Verse 18, suffering and glory go together. And then this passage is bookended. Look at verse 30. It ends with the word glorified. And so this passage is clearly about Paul talking to us about our future, our destination in Jesus of glory. But now we groan. And before we get into the three groanings that Paul talks about, I briefly want to mention a couple of things that are important because we do need to go through this somewhat quickly. The first thing is, as I said, the passage is about glory. But the, the, the thing that I really want to say is suffering and glory are connected. We saw it in verse 17. We see it in verse 18. There's something about the nature of living in a fallen world where we aren't what we will be, and the process of becoming what we will be is one of pain, suffering, 
and hardship. And we see it in Jesus. So that's first, suffering and glory are connected. And the second thing is that suffering and glory are not to be compared. They can only be contrasted. That's something else that we see in this passage and we see in the New Testament. Look here in verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. To make it more concrete for us, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul contrasts glory and suffering there, or he calls it our light momentary affliction or suffering, in terms of weight or weightiness. So the verse is this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so when we understand the present age, it might be marked by suffering, but the future age will be marked by glory. And we now live in the overlapping reality of these two. And so we experience both our future glory and we experience still the pain and suffering of this world. And so those are two important things. I can't say any more about them now, but let's zone in on, zoom in, I mean, on these three groanings. So first, in verse 19, Paul talks about creation. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 19, verse 20, verse 21, all begin with creation at the very beginning. We see it again in verse 20. Verse 19, for the creation waits. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the creation is longing. We can't say a lot about this, but we need to note that Paul is connecting creation directly to human beings. Our state that is to say, fallen, corrupt, is connected to the current state of creation, right? What Paul is showing here is that the glory we were created for, that is to be co-rulers with God, the so-called cultural mandate where we were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and be culture makers, that when we sinned, when we fell, creation suffered as well. When we experienced that, creation suffered as well. And so Paul here is personifying creation, and creation in this sense is any non-human thing. So the animals, every creature that lives, creation itself, okay? All of that creation was subjected to futility and in a sense has become corrupted, and corrupted in the sense of it's decaying. It's waiting, it's longing that when human beings are glorified, it will be restored to its proper place. So there are lots of implications for this, and we're not going to get into any of them today. But I do want to mention that it is a very Christian thing to care about nature, care about the environment, to care about primarily the way in which we as human beings, image bearers, steward this gift of God. We are integrally connected to it. There are, of course, strange and weird ways that can go. It can be worshipped as an idol, But nevertheless, let's not just throw it away because God is not going to throw it away. He's going to restore it when he restores us. So creation groans. And we see we're so integrally connected to the creation that Paul says in verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves groan. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit 
groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I want to point something out. Notice what causes us to groan. It's not the lack of the Holy Spirit in us that causes us to groan. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit in us that makes us groan. Right? Having the Spirit produces the groaning. Commentator Doug Moo points out that once the Spirit enters our lives, we sense like never before what God wants us to be. We sense like we never could have, apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit, what we were made for. And when we experience this new, these new desires, this new love given by the Holy Spirit, as a result, the Spirit increases our frustration at how far short we fall from what we will be and what God wants us to be. So we look at creation and see how far short it falls. We also look at ourselves and we see how far short we fall. Think about it like this. Imagine that you live in a house and you never really thought much about the house. You never, you just, it's a house, right? You live in the house. And then one day you're presented with this beautiful blueprint, but not just a blueprint, but money in your account as a down payment to get this renovation project going. So now you have a blueprint. You begin to look at it and you see that, oh, that thing I've always didn't know I needed, that is to say this area where I can show hospitality and have parties or read or whatever it is you value, it's all there in this blueprint. But not only is it there, but the money to begin this project is there. You never thought about it before, but now you have it and now you can't unsee it. And then every day you live in the house, your frustration kind of grows, doesn't it? It grows because you're living in the house currently, but you know what it's going to become. And then every time you have someone over and you think, this is fine, but oh, what if the garden was done and this was done and this wall was gone, right? The renovation, what if it was complete? How much better would it be? And the more clear you get on the renovation and the more clear you get on the gap between what your house would be now and what it would be, it would cause frustration. It would cause groaning. And we experience the already work of God in our lives, don't we? We experience it. It's real, but it's not final. It's real. It's begun, but it's not complete. And so then when we recognize reading the fruit of the Spirit, for example, and then we take an audit of our day and our week and our life, it's laughable. It's laughable how different it is, how we would have treated our spouse, our children, our neighbor. If we were brought to completion, if we were glorified, and yet how we actually, in fact, did treat them. Ultimately, we are waiting for full redemption of our bodies. And that means in every way, inside and out, we will be glorified like Jesus is now. Because we'll be fully conformed. So my question is, where are you groaning? Some of us think that groaning is a sign of immaturity. But in fact, it's the spirit that ought to produce groaning. We ought to groan. We ought to groan and lament what ought to be, what we know will be, and yet what is in our own hearts. Do you groan your anger? Do you groan over the, over the fact that you are angry? And you know you won't always be that way. Do you groan over your selfishness? Do you groan over your codependence, your ceaseless striving, that causes you to ignore relationships? Do you groan over the things that you have no control over? Do you groan over the ways that you've been sinned against? Do you groan over the ways in which your loves 
are completely disordered? Do you groan over all of the ways that you and I don't even value what we should value? We, we don't even think about it. Do we groan? Where do you groan? The promise here is that we will groan, but we will groan with hope. Remember, God is taking us from groaning to glory. That will happen if you're in Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, in this journey, how do we wait? How do we wait when we're groaning, but we know we're moving toward glory, but we're not fully there yet? And that leads to the second point, how do we wait? How do we wait in the meantime? And Paul tells us we wait eagerly with patience. Look with me at the second part of verse 23. He says, those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Again, at the end of verse 25, he says again, we wait for it, that is the hope of our future glory. We wait for it with patience. Now, I was reflecting on this this week is those two things seem to be separate. How do you wait eagerly with patience? I don't tend to put eagerness with patience. Do you? How does that work out? The word eagerly, one commentator points out, is, is you could translate it something like the picture of craning your necks or stretching your necks to see something. So when we were on vacation, like I mentioned, it was a road trip, and inevitably one of the kids would burst out out of nowhere, look at that, right? And, and all the kids are not paying attention, and then you see them like craning their necks, looking, trying to see before it's gone. Can I see it? What are we looking at? What am I even supposed to be looking at? But you imagine cranking your neck. Someone says, look at that. And you do. You move. You crane. You look. You, you, you look over your shoulder. You do everything you can to see it. That's the idea of eagerly. And yet also patiently. John Stott says this. We are not to wait so eagerly that we lose our patience. Nor are we to wait so patiently that we lose our eagerness, enthusiasm, and expectation." Man, is that hard? So hard. So hard. Now, I racked my brain for an illustration on this. Never came up with one. But then I, my mind was drawn, my eyes were drawn. Well, Paul already gave us an illustration, I think, of this. Look with me up here in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, let's Let's use this for a second. Admittedly, I have never experienced the pains of childbirth, but Pa didn't either. And remember, this is before Pitocin or any other intervention, right? Let's just, let's just know what Paul was inviting us into, okay? I've never experienced this. I've seen it happen four times. And I know that there is this dynamic to where in the pains of childbirth or just in the, the reality of waiting for birth, that there is an eagerness. There is a deep eagerness. You can't wait to see this child. You can't wait to hold this child. You can't wait to introduce this child. You can't wait to see him. You've been thinking about them, right? There's an eagerness. You're, you're straining your neck, as it were. Just, I can't wait to see this. I can't wait to see this. Some of you are grandparents. Some of you are brothers and sisters. Some of you are nieces and nephews. You, you know this. You're excited. And yet there's nothing you can do to rush it. Nothing. You have to be patient. You're equally eager and patient. But try telling that to the woman in labor. 
It's like, hey, just be patient. This has got to take its time. You know what I mean? There's like, there's nothing you can do about this. Uh, just take a few deep breaths. Being excited is not helping, right? You don't, no, of course not. So we understand that there is this tension that we experience in the future glory and in the current suffering. We are eager for the glory and the joy that comes with the glory. In this case, the baby. The joy that's on the other part of the suffering. And yet, as far as I know, we still aren't exactly sure what causes labor or many of those details. And so we have to be patient. We wait. It's an estimated due date. We wait. And so that's the best I could do. I had to use Paul's illustration. But can you feel it, kind of? Can you kind of feel the eagerness and yet the patience? Paul's inviting us into waiting eagerly, but with patience. And I'll read John Stott's helpful, succinct phrase one more time. We are not to wait so eagerly that we lose our patience, nor are we to wait so patiently that we lose our eagerness. Our groans are in hope. They are labor pains, but they're looking forward to the coming joy. And the text gives us two more pointers that I want to point out quickly. One is in, is in verses 24 and 25, and that there is a hope that is joyful. And we need to remind ourselves, as many of us have heard before, that biblical hope is a type of certainty that something will happen. This isn't a wishfulness. Paul says, in this hope, we were saved. And in a sense, what we're, what we're saying here is that we have put everything, we have hoped everything, we're looking at everything, we're putting all our weight into this fact that God in Jesus Christ is saving us, and that includes our full redemption, including our bodies and our glorification. We fully put our hope in this. And this hope isn't wishful thinking, but it is certainty. We just can't see it yet. That's the first pointer that I want to draw our attention to. And the second one is actually the third groaning. The first groaning was creation. We share in that groaning as human beings. So that was the second groaning, our groaning inwardly. But the third one is unexpected. It's the groaning of the helping Holy Spirit. Look with me in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. You ever felt that experience when in the midst of your affliction, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain? Maybe it's not only pain you've, you've uh, it's been afflicted on you, you feel the pain you have afflicted on others. You feel how your own brokenness and sinfulness has affected other people and you share in that pain. You're broken, you're lamenting, you're convicted. And in those moments, isn't it hard to know what to say? Isn't it hard to know what to pray? The reason is, is because of our weakness is what Paul says. We should not be surprised that we don't know what to say in great hardship, difficulty, and suffering. But that doesn't leave us hopeless. Our weakness doesn't leave us hopeless. Paul wants us to know that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, there's the word, too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, and this is so comforting, according to the will of God. It's not just the Spirit has words that you don't. It's that he knows the will of God and you don't. We don't have to be scared that we don't know what to say because we know the Spirit is 
interceding for us. But then we don't have to wonder if the Spirit's interceding will be effective or not because the Spirit knows the very will of God and that is what the Spirit is praying on our behalf. Even when it doesn't look like it, even when we can't feel it, God does not leave us alone in our groaning. He enters into our groaning by the Spirit. One commentator helpfully points out a very specific, very important difference between the creation's groaning, our groaning, and the Spirit's groaning. This is what he says. We are ignorant of God's will, so we don't know how to pray appropriately. So the Holy Spirit comes to our aid. The Holy Spirit does groan, but there's a difference. The creation and the children of God groan because of our weakness and imperfection, but not with the Holy Spirit. It must be that the Holy Spirit groans in the sense that he identifies with the pain of the world and the church. He shares in the pain and shares with our longing and our freedom. But the Spirit intercedes for us and he knows the will of God, whether we don't know what to say because of our finitude or our frustration, the Spirit intercedes for us. Listen, God is taking us from groaning to glory. He calls us to wait in the in-between with eager patience. And while there are many things we don't know, we don't know what to pray as we ought, there are a few things we know. And Paul wants to leave us with what we know. And that's my final point. What do we know? We know God's goal. We know God's goal. Ah, God's goal is to conform us to the image of his son. And now I need to go quickly here at the end. But know this. I assume that many of you have been at the wrong end or the unhelpful end of this verse. Quoted to you in ways that were ignorant, maybe unsensitive, insensitive, in a number of ways. But nevertheless, I invite you to to lean in and, and pay attention to just a couple of things here. The verse I'm talking about is verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I want to say two things. First of all, God is working. God works. Okay? Paul says God works. Now, there's some question about how exactly this verse should be translated, but it doesn't matter whether, if it, when it's properly understood, what we know is this, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And, and this is what Paul is hoping that we see. Paul is hoping that our assurance that God is ceaselessly, energetically, and lovingly at work in every aspect of our lives, that, our, that that assurance would be so strong that in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the in-between, that we would know that, that we would, as Paul says in verse 18, consider this, that we would bring it to mind and reflect that God is working. He's not making it up as he goes. (laughs) So we're comforted, not just in that God has ordained the end, glory, but also the means, all things. It's hard. But let's talk about all things for a second. In this all things that God's working good, not all things that happen to you are good. I need to say that. Not all things that happen to you are good. Cancer is not good. Death is not good. Chronic illness is not good. Abuse is not good. But God works in all circumstances in our lives to accomplish his good purposes for his children. And this is one of the great promises of Scripture. And this great promise both preserves us in the trial, but it also prunes us in the trial. It preserves us in this way. That we can all have rock-solid assurance that our present circumstances are under God's overarching purpose, which is for our good. 
That's a rock-solid assurance. It preserves us in the pain and suffering. But it also prunes us because in these things in our lives, they don't always look or feel like this is a part of God bringing us from groaning to glory. It just looks like groaning. It just feels like groaning. And it's hard for us to imagine that this is going to take us to good, right? It's often hard to discern God's goodness in the midst of chronic pain. It's, it's often hard or impossible to discern God's goodness in the deepest grief or in the uncertainty of, of the oncology ward. Where is God's goodness in a miscarriage or infertility or the loss of a dream or the loss of a job? One scholar says, we have to understand that what Paul tells the Romans is not that we live in the best possible world, but we are being prepared for the best possible world in the best possible way. We live in a fallen world, but God is at work. And maybe my favorite more pastorally than the first is John Newton. John Newton says, everything is necessary that God sends our way. Everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. And again, I close with where I opened. All of this only makes sense when we look at the cross of Jesus and know that God is conforming us to the image of his son. When we join Paul in considering these things, the glory that was purchased for us as contrasted with our current suffering. Think about the cross. The cross is undiluted evil. The cross is not good. It is undiluted evil. The cross was not good, and yet through the cross, God brings the highest good. That is to bring us to glory. The reality in following Jesus is that Jesus suffered not so we would not suffer, but so that when we suffer, we would become like him. Jesus makes our suffering and hardship productive toward a purpose, not pointless. You see, our hope also is in verse 30. What we see is, Jesus is the firstborn of many brothers. You see, God has settled our future and our hope. He's changed our relationship with him now. We are a part of his family now. And God will not leave us or forsake us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So on this journey from groaning to glory, the overlap of the ages, we wait eagerly and patiently, but we know, we know that we are children of God. We know that he will bring us to glory. We know that he is working. We know that he will work everything to our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. And in our weakness, Holy Spirit, you intercede for us, and so I'm just going to give a few seconds now, and I invite everyone here to sit for just a few moments, acknowledging, considering where you're groaning this morning, knowing that even though you don't have words, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. Let's take just a few seconds of silence and recognize that, consider it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.